We are pretty much done with Colossians. We could, I suppose, do the final greeting, <laughs> but I don't, I think we did part of it, the part of it that was important to our topic last week. So I thought we should move on to First Thessalonians. And uh, we have a long first paragraph. Who would like to read? Whole chapter. First, First Thessalonians, verse chapter one, verses two to ten. It's practically the whole chapter. Okay. We always give thanks to God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering, without ceasing, your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father. We know, brothers loved by God, that you are chosen and that our good news came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with much assurance. You know what kind of men we showed ourselves to be among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all who believe in Macedonia and in Achaia. For from you the word of the Lord has been declared, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone out, so that we need not to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us what kind of a reception we had from you, and how you turned to God from idols, to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Thank you. Any comments or questions about this? What would happen if the pastor of the church got up on Sabbath morning and gave a, a statement like this to the congregation, thanking them for what, what they have done and, and all of that. Paul doesn't do this in every letter. I think he does this a little bit in Philippians. He maybe does a shorter version, a much, much shorter version of this. This is a long address of Thanksgiving. I, I thought it was just, yeah, it was pretty radical for him to say, you've been so effective in your witnessing that we don't have to say anything. Mm -hmm. Like you said it all, or more like you demonstrated it all, mm -hmm. even more mm -hmm. effective than saying it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really emphasized the, the uh, example that they're giving. Now, when he was there, they when they were living by example. Mm -hmm. and, and it's interesting that he says, you became imitators of us. You followed our example. I had a discussion with someone yesterday, and they brought out what they're beginning to realize. Um, they're actually signing up for a coaching training place 
with um, a Buddhist because she told me that she has never seen someone so transparent and vulnerable and honest and enthusiastic. And she said, this is what we need to learn to do. This is what we should be doing. This is true coaching is mentoring people. And she was so impressed with, with this coach. And she told her, she said, well, I'm, she said, I'm a Christian. I don't think, you know, I could do this. And she said, I, I look for truth wherever I find it and put it together. And the lady said, no problem. I do the same thing. She said, we need to be doing this kind of thing. We need to be coaching because giving your testimony and making yourself vulnerable to people. In fact, she quoted on a white. She said, we need to allow people to come close to us so that they can see how the Holy Spirit works in our life. Mm-hmm. And that's really vulnerability. And we see almost nothing like that. It's all like professional, let's tell you how to do it, mm-hmm. go out and do it. But no, 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 vulnerability, none of that stuff. Yeah, I think Paul was very vulnerable. Yeah. You, read, you get that in his epistles especially where there was the greatest amount of damage. He was the most vulnerable. And I think of first Corinthians, second Corinthians, that whole difficult situation there and how he dealt with it. He was very humble about it. When you ask about our pastor had done this in one of our churches, uh, it reminds me of this week's Sabbath school lesson talks about the verse in uh, John, was it or James about, uh, confessing your transgressions to the church. And, uh, That's something we'd be terrified to do, wouldn't we? We'd be very terrified because we don't accept people. We, we focus on the sins. Uh, we don't focus on the, the heart. And uh, one advantage of, the trip, uh, of AA meetings is they accept the person. Yeah. And so when they say, uh, I'm an alcoholic, then we say, you know, if you're an, an AA member, what they're saying is that we uh, don't accept alcoholism and that disease, but we accept you as a person. And uh, it's very clear that they're accepting that person the person as a person. Where in our churches, we focus on the symptoms, the disease, the fallen part. We don't focus on the person, the heart, and their an example that I heard recently was, what would our church do if someone had confessed that they had murdered somebody? One of our leaders had murdered somebody. For example, David. Oh, and Moses had murdered someone. What would our church do? Well, we'd- is, that, is that why Ed, we have spent generations with children uh, bla- um, whitewashing biblical heroes? Yes. David becomes a just a, a man after God's own heart. And but they didn't help us to understand when did that happen. It didn't happen through his early part of his life. It was after he had, uh, you know, be, you know the, killed the, the leader in the military and so forth, and he had given his heart. The, the war, the Lord works with us till our heart is cleansed and changed and back to to Him. And that's when he was the man after his own heart. But what I'm saying is. We've had a tendency to, we think of Abraham as an example as the hero of faith. 
And yet, all the way through his story, he's doubting. <laughs> right. um, and, and we have not been willing to look at people in their vulnerability. We have wanted to whitewash them so that we can whitewash ourselves. Right. <coughs> Excuse me. Because well, our tendency is to, to do like humans and do the way human laws are set up. And uh, so that means we look at symptoms and the outward appearance. We don't look at the heart and accept people who they are and help them uh, with their transformation with the Lord. Yeah, it's, it's really a disservice. It's such a, I think it's that black and white concrete thinking and that's some way going to save us. I think that the key to understanding how this came about is in verse five. We know this because our good news didn't come to you just in speech, but also with power and the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. You know as, as well as we do what kind of people we were when we were with you, which was for your sake. And then he says, you were imitators of us. I think our biggest problem as a church, and I'll speak for myself, is that we give the good news without the power in the Holy Spirit's presence and deep conviction. We're too casual about it. We believe it, but it isn't the ruling force maybe in our lives like it should be. And we share it by focusing on the symptoms rather than focusing on grace and the work of the Holy Spirit. Just so much, I just, years and years, I'm just so sick of hearing about all the symptoms and very little about grace and the Holy Spirit. We very seldom hear anything in sermon-wise or from the, you know, the conference or anybody about the Holy Spirit and grace and um, we hear at PUC a lot about grace, but grace, but there's nothing really deep and personal. There's nothing vulnerable about it. Mm-hmm. I think this is a call. This, this section is a call to be long like Paul. And as Paul imitated Jesus to be more like Jesus. I don't think Paul ever intended him to be, be the paragon of, of rightness. He's simply saying, we tried to show you how. Let that be your, your model to follow. But he understands that he is nothing in terms of his own ability to transfer the good news to people. But that it is really from God and, and the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, that this takes place. Floyd, anything from you? Well, what I've been learning for the last few months that's been challenging practically everything I thought most of my life is that this transformation that he's talking about as having happened that resonated and radiated all over the world from these people was not because of anything they did, but because they embraced the real truth of the good news, which the good news is their identity was entirely different than they thought it was. And, and when we believe the truth about our identity, then our experience becomes transformed to reflect that. 
And what has held us back, particularly inside the church, from having this dynamite experience that's undeniable is because we have trained ourselves to identify ourselves as sinners. You know, struggling, trying to get more grace every little bit to get our sins forgiven repeatedly over and over and over. And that's Old Testament flesh mentality. And it's not until just recently I began realizing that I've been doing the same thing my whole life. And instead of, and, and I've had a problem with AA's approach. It's, as wonderful as their results have been, I had a friend who told me what goes on, and I said, I got a real problem with a person for years and years and years being forced to say, I'm an alcoholic. Now, I understand the rationale for that. I completely understand it. But I don't believe that's what saves us like Jesus saved us. And what I'm seeing now very clearly in the New Testament is that is no longer my identity. That's flesh thinking. And if I began choosing to believe that I am the righteousness of God, I'm not becoming it, I am already identified as the righteousness of God. I am already loved. I'm already a child of God. And then when I believe this, not based on behavior or anything else, but based on the fact that Jesus says that's what I am. That's what he came and did. He gave me that identity. When I believe that identity, that begins the transformation process. The transformation does not make it a reality it aligns my condition with what's already true. And that's the shift that I'm making the last few months and even the last few days. And that's the power of the gospel that I've never experienced before. And I'm watching it transform other people. And I believe that is the power of the gospel that's going to radically change how we think about God, how we think about religion. That's the light that's going to rock the world and make the enemies, you know, the forces of darkness very, very angry with us. I have a little, maybe a, I think what you say uh, makes a lot of sense, but I have a little bit different uh, reflection on that. Our condition is a condition which we didn't choose. We're not a healed condition. We're not rejuvenated, we're not made sinless, we're, we're in this fallen condition. So I have to accept that I'm in this fallen condition. Now, I may not like to admit that or agree with it, uh, but if we try to deny we're in that position, it's not dealing with reality. And the same is like the alcoholic. That type of process of alcoholism doesn't go away because you say you're an alcoholic, but you do try to understand that what it means, this condition, the way your biology is, your brain structure, your genetics, you are an alcoholic. And that's accepting that I'm in this fallen condition. It's not saying, uh, waving a flag, hallelujah, I'm an alcoholic or hallelujah, I'm a sinner. That's, the human thinking the way the world thinks 
that we are designed like the world designs laws and uh, the way the world functions. But then if I accept that I'm a sinner, then what do I do about that? Then it comes into uh, understanding what that means to be fallen and understanding that there is grace, that there is hope, that there is salvation. But to do that as a person and as a church and as individuals like Paul, we have to express to them that I accept you where you are now, who you are now. And so to accept who I am now, I need someone else to tell me that, that they still love me, that I can still come to church, that I can still uh, function. And if I don't have that, my brain only functions on part of my brain. Just, I know we don't have much time, but when I work with a human or we talk to a human, then both sides, my left and right side of the brain, my frontal cortex get interactive. That's what happens when we pray, when we do it with a human or we pray. By the way, the tests show it doesn't matter if I pray to Allah or I pray to God, but if I pray to a, a, a being that's alive and functioning, not to a statue like Santa Claus or something. When we pray to a Santa Claus or to a computer or a statue, it doesn't activate those parts of the brain. It only activates the left, right, and the frontal cortex when we're interacting with humans or with a human God, a God that's alive and real. So that's we need that. That's the way it was designed, and so we need that understanding, however we word it, that we can have that connection with our Father who then the Holy Spirit and grace can work within us. Okay, but I, I want to mediate here <clears throat> because the Bible does, Jesus does not treat people as though they're sinners. He treats people right. as though they're righteous. And I, I'm not saying we treat them as sinners. I'm just saying that. But, but here's the thing. If I, I constantly identify myself as a sinner, and that's where I am. I'm stuck. I'm stuck in the old life. I can't transition out of it. No matter how much I say I'm a sinner, that's, that puts me there. It keeps that me. Only, that only is the confession, confession part. That's not accepting but, the grace. So, so we need to get to the bigger picture because we're, we've part. been stuck in this sinful thing right. for about 150 for 75 years as a church. And what God wants to do is to lift us out of that and to recognize neither do I condemn you. Go and be a better person from now. Go on. You are going to be a better person from now on. Well, with Adam, that's what he did. He said, who told you? That you are naked. Exactly. The is, exactly. This it's is, your conscience. It's your yeah. awareness. This is, it's your. Yeah. This is where God wants to take us, because as long as we sit stuck in our mantra that we're a sinner, uh, we can never really stop being sinful. It's like it's like the parent who constantly tells his child, "You're no good," and the child lives up to it. 
Well, I'm not saying that, that we're stuck. I'm, I'm not saying what I was saying doesn't say that we should just say we're stuck. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that we have to recognize who we are. I, I agree with that. I agree with that. We have to recognize our sinful past. But, but that's recognition. That's not acceptance. Absolutely. Like confession isn't resolving it. It's just the confession. No, it, it, in, fact, it, in fact, if that's all we do, we're stuck. Yeah. Right. We have nothing. And that's man's way. I confess my sins to the priest, and then he does his thing, like, go but do this. What, what I found in my own life, when God has truly led me to repentance, I feel such so much love and so much freedom that I don't feel that injury of self-condemnation. Right. That's the grace. And and I think that's what what Floyd, if I forgive me, Floyd, if I'm wrong, but I think that's what you've been, partly at least what you've well, been. Saying. The breakthrough for me came a number of years ago because I've struggled with this my whole life, and I could never reconcile the claims of the Bible that, you know, that I'm accepted, loved, righteous, all that stuff. It just, it sounded so superficial and unreal because when I looked at my life, I said, well, then I must not be converted. I must not be a Christian because what it describes is not me. That is not my life. Therefore, I have to become that. And I've worked and worked and worked and worked my whole life to, and I've tried every gimmick in the book, all the solutions, all the formulas, basically they all don't work. And finally, and I just left it up to God. God's going to have to show me this thing. And one day God led me to a book. I started reading the book, and he gave me the answer. Clear as could be. It's a distinguishing between my condition, as Ed pointed out. Yes, absolutely. Confess my condition. No problem with that. But separating that entirely, totally separating that from my identity. Nobody had ever said that before. Nobody had ever explained that before. I don't of think who you are. Understood it. Right, you know, of who it's you not are. My identity. My identity does not come from my good deeds or my bad deeds. Right. It has right. nothing to do with it. My identity comes from Christ. Right. Now, I think where I've gone on that with is to suggest that we are valuable because of creation. Yes. And nothing can yes. change that value. Yes. Um, <laughs> value. And yeah. the enemy has led us to believe that our value is based on our performance. Right. And therefore, if we improve our performance, then our identity changes, and that's the lie. And, and well, that comes right out of Babylonia. Yeah. <laughs> and I finally that our, my condition is a direct symptom of what I believe about my identity. And because I believe my identity was the same as my condition all my life, voila, it continued. It just reinforced itself. Now I'm learning about my true identity, and I believe it, contrary to my feelings, contrary to other people's opinions, contrary to anything. If I start believing this is my identity, because when God says something, he has the power to make it true. Therefore, it has to be true. Either, either that or I'm calling God a liar, which isn't a real good idea. When I start believing that's my identity and celebrating that this is my identity, 
my condition then begins to transform, but my condition never is to be allowed to define who I am or my value. That's the difference. And that breakthrough unlocked my head so that now I can start to make progress. Yes, this is a transition in my condition. I'm not denying that, but my condition should never be confused with my identity. Right. Well, that's a good way to put it because the world wants you and Satan wants us to identify yes. as the world identifies us. Yeah. And we're constantly hearing this. Now, my issue back to the AA is because humans' tendency is to function like the world wants us to function. Then as the program goes on, it starts becoming more like the world's identity. Yeah. And that's always been my issue as a therapist and as a person because of that issue. And that's why you end up, I think, largely why you end up with the concept of the dry drunk. I don't know if you've heard that before. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. you're taking on the world's identity. So initially when they accept you as an individual, that's what I want our church to do is I'm accepting you as an individual, not because you said you're alcoholic or you're a rapist or anything else that I'm focused because I love you and I'm accepting you. And there, there you have a real conflict because if you're a rapist, right. nobody's supposed to accept you in the church. Yeah. And, and, and our today's lesson focused on that we should confess in church, of course, we, we don't want to do that, but I think I'm a more mature thinking is that we only confess. Confession isn't sort of asking for absolution or, or forgiveness. It's just okay. confessing. Floyd, you've unpacked something in an experiential way that I find extremely helpful in understanding Scripture because the 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 forensic model has taken all those passages and put them in a legal slant, which makes yeah. it very unreal. That's true. And I think the translators didn't do us any service. In no, they to haven't. Problem. No. Yeah. So now I can t- go to those phrases, and now I have a base from which to interpret them mm-hmm. in an experiential manner rather than a legal manner. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that because um, this is something I've been looking for for I don't know how long. It was something I just, it, it shut that part off from me. I could accept my value in God because of who he is and all of that. And I, I did long ago transition out of trying to, to become what God wanted me to become, but I'd just rather bask in him and let him take care of the transformation of my character. I did that in high school, but nonetheless, the old person was more easily rising up in the background, particularly when I hit a trial of any kind or, or something very um, difficult to manage. So thank you. Last thank night I was listening to more of this live on a Zoom thing. And he explained what the word confess means. If you look at the Greek, it's homo logio which is to speak the same word. That's what confess means. And he pointed out that confession is not identifying yourself as a sinner. Not what it means. It's identifying 
the same thing that Jesus says about you. You confess the truth about your condition, yes, but that's not your identity. You confess his view of your sin, and your sin is the result of believing the lie about who you are. So you confess how he sees it, and then you confess your true identity in Christ. So confession, we thought confession was groveling, you know, humiliating yourself, and in essence trying to buy forgiveness or buy favor or buy a little more time from God like the, like the debtor, right? Just give me more time. I can do this. It's like, no, confession is coming into agreement with God's perspective of who I am instead of the malfunction. And I'm like, wow. And I discovered years ago that almost every religious word has been hijacked. And we have to go back and salvage these words back to their original meaning. Yeah, that's a task I haven't need another lifetime to accomplish. (laughs) (laughs) Stop doing it really fast lately. (laughs) I have one task right now to accomplish, and I think it's hard for me to get to it, but... God blessed me this week with, um, I don't know if it was more time or better use of mine. Actually, I had fewer appointments to go to. I, I have to go to my appointments. I have to go to my parents' appointments. I have to go, I have to take them to all their, so I, I have just like 25 appointments every summer. And then that goes throughout the year. And next week, my brother's coming up. So it's going to be really difficult to get in my time. But I have to take my car in for new brakes so that I have four hours. I have to wait for it for four hours, and I can, I can work on what I need to do for four hours. I'm stuck. <laughs> anyway, um, back to First Thessalonians. Are we ready to move on to the next chapter? Or do you still have something to say with this one? I think the next chapter would be good. Okay. Uh, Ed, would you like to read down to verse 12? Down to 12, okay. This is an even longer section. Brothers and sisters, you know that we do not fail in our mission to you. You know how we were mocked and mistreated in Philippi, yet with God's help we brought you the remedy despite intense opposition from those peddling a false remedy. Unlike the oppositions, Our remedy is not based on lies, greed, or desire to promote ourselves. We're not trying to trick you. What we do is just the opposite. As messengers commissioned by God and are trusted with the remedy, we do not pursue the approval of people. We do not seek to please God who examines our hearts, uh, but we seek to please God who examines our hearts and knows our motives. But you should know this because of the manner we dealt with you and never tried to influence you, influence you by flattery or hide what we were doing, as the greedy ones do, and God certainly knows this is true. We don't want fame or praise or for uh, fame worship, not from you or anyone else. As ambassadors of Christ, we had authority over you, but we did not order you about. We were tender and compassionate, caring for you like a mother who seeks to best seeks the best for her children. We love you so much that we can, 
we not only brought you the remedy, but we also gave you our hearts. Don't you remember that while distributing God's remedy among you, we worked hard in order to avoid placing an extra burden upon you? Both you and God can testify that while we were with you, we did what was right, healthy, reasonable, and in harmony with God's law of love. You know that we treated you as a loving father treats his own father, intervening to build you up, strengthen, and keep you on the road of full recovery. Restoration to God's ideal, healing is called to live in his eternal kingdom. I can't resist reading what my version says. Um, I won't read the whole passage. Our appeal is not based, I'm starting with verse 3, on false information, the wrong motives or deceptions. Rather, we have been examined and approved by God to be trusted with the good news. And that's exactly how we speak. We aren't trying to please people, but we are trying to please God who continues to examine our hearts. As you know, we never use flattery, and God is our witness that we didn't have greedy motives. We didn't ask for special treatment from people, not from you or from others, though we could have thrown our weight around as Christ's apostles. Instead, we were gentle with you like nursing mother cares for caring for her own children. We were glad to share not only God's good news with you, but also our very lives because we cared for you so much. I thought some of the idiomatic language here was interesting, the throwing away the weight around. And Common English Bible is very idiomatically translated. And consequently, a lot of times you don't get that legal bent. Depends on who the translator is and what, ver what, what book he's translating. Yeah. Because this is done by a committee. I happen to know who translated one of the books, and I disagree with one of his most important words, but um, because of, I think, his intent behind it, since he's written a whole book on it, not on the word, but on the topic. So what do you think about uh, Paul's still talking, doing the narrative of his work with the Thessalonians? Why do you think he had to be so specific and clear about this. It, it really is very specific, the whole process, their orientation, uh, the way they were with people. He really had to, if he was this, which I assume he was, wouldn't people understand this? What They would understand the concepts. Why did he have to say it? Yeah, why, why did he have to make it? Is he really trying to speak to us today? Is it possible that Paul, one of Paul's undercurrents and returning narratives is that he has enemies who are Christian, claim to be Christian, but they claim to be Jews also. And they're usually called the Judaizers. And they track Paul and they follow him from place to place and undermine his influence. Hmm. I believe those people would have been not only discrediting Paul and his motives, but if these people, and I believe they did, had embraced their true identity in Christ, the way Paul presented it, which mm -hmm. I think we've largely missed, but they actually got it. They embraced the truth about who they were in Christ, and the result was so explosive the Judaizers had to come in and convince them, well, no, now that's not your true identity. Really, mm -hmm. your condition 
you know, is your true identity and, and you're not as holy mm -hmm. as you think you are. And they discrediting the very gospel itself and they're in danger. And so Paul is coming and saying, remember mm -hmm. how you received this. Remember mm -hmm. the results it had in your life. You're forgetting who you are and what powerful revelation that had. So I'm going to remind you mm -hmm. of the power the gospel had in your life to, as well as his own credibility to defeat the slander and the insinuations and the inferences that are necessarily there by somebody who's trying to disassemble what had happened. Well, uh, Gene, um, with your studies, it helped me to understand the process. I assume if he's in Thessalonica, would have he written a letter there and just give it to a church leader, or would they have done massive letters and mailed them out to these he's people? Not, he's not in Thessalonica. Or? He's not in Thessalonica. He's somewhere else. So he sends this letter to Thessalonica. To because the he knows church. that these other people are going to be there after him, trying to derail them back into. The right. Order. So he sent it to them. So it's not that he's there. He's there and he's being attacked, you said, by these groups that follow him around. <clears throat> but he's somewhere else sending them now a letter to uh, to encourage them. And to, after he's been there, right. they then try to turn it upside down. Right. So he's, like Floyd's you know, mentioned, right. he really reminding them, supporting them, giving them right. hope and, and so forth. Okay. Yeah. That's what I thought. It's not like he's got a printing machine and he's sending this all out to everybody or anything. No, no, he doesn't. He he knows each people group, each church group, and he's he's applying it to each one in an own personalized way. Because if he's if he sent out the same letter, which he could have done, could have sent the same letter to everybody, it would not have had the effect. Impact, right? You know that. From our form letters that we get, <laughs> it's like, even when they say, Dear Gene, I'm like, oh, right, you spit that out of a computer. <laughs> Anything else about this section? Well, it just, it really, along this theme, identifies how important it is to keep in mind our identity and who we are and what's going on because we're so easily distracted by the huge impact we get from other people and their belief systems. And of course, in our day, we're just totally impacted by the media and everywhere you turn, writing, every, every communication is just a total impact of the world. And to really keep our beliefs and our identity and our process, uh, you see, I'm using identity, Floyd. I like this way of putting it, the concept that words it in a nice way. Uh, you know, in an understandable way. But we are just totally impacted. We need a clear, well, for example, this virus that's going around, we don't get clear information from local governments, from medical, from uh, state, federal. It's so confusing, not, not very clear. And, I think uh, that's because everybody's confused. <laughs> well, but the information that really valid information isn't presented clearly or consistently. 
But I think that's because it changes every time they test it. I think I think the coronavirus is so um, masterfully constructed that it can constantly mutate and cause. Well, it is. Yes, yeah. we already know it's yeah. And it, so the, the the method the message changes every day, not every day, but very frequently, it changes. But it, you know, it is true that when we meet anything, any difficulty, we tend to look at it through the world's. What I see the flavor of these first two chapters here, which I think comes to a, sort of a peak in the next verse, in thirteen, is that these people who are coming in with a legal-based, behavior, identity-based message, which is how humanity thinks, Mm -hmm. the spirit that they demonstrate is in sharp contrast with the spirit that Paul is reminding them that he had. And he keeps talking about affection and gentleness and compassion and tenderness and, you know, motherly doting, all this kind of stuff, because it's the spirit, it is a spirit of affection. It's, he had demonstrated them God's affection for them, and his opponents come in and they say, no, God is a stern father, he's got rules, you need to be keeping the rules. And the battle is over, where does my identity come from? I've wrestled with this my whole life, I believed almost all my life that my identity came from my performance. And it wasn't until a few years ago I finally began realizing, wait a minute, that's exactly what Paul means when he says, according to the flesh. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean I have fleshly lust. What it means is I get my identity from what I do. Mm-hmm. My identity is defined by mistakes or my good things or or my looks, or anything other than the simple declaration of what Jesus says. And, and, and Romans 7 is a description of a person who gets their identity from the law. But it doesn't do much for changing their behavior, because the law can point out your problems, but try as hard as we can, we're stuck in it, because the law cannot save us only love can transform us and so then romans 8 says according to the spirit if you live according to the spirit the spirit of love that's what transforms you so am i getting my identity from jesus who is the embodiment of love and i'm already accepted already forgiven already embraced already righteous according to paul or am i getting my identity from how well my condition is doing And whatever I believe about my identity is either going to be based on rule-keeping or I'm loved. And so Paul's reminding them, listen, I came and showed you what being loved looks like in a person. I mentored you, and then you got it, and you started feeling love, and you received that love directly from God, and look what it did to you. Now it's sort of like the Galatians. Don't go back and think that you have to use the law for your identity now. No. Love saved you. Love is going to continue to keep you. I would like to insert something when you, you mention where, where his righteousness 
this is how I see God <coughs> doing the word righteousness. Abraham or Abram trusted the Lord and the Lord recognized that as his righteousness. Yeah. That's, that's what righteousness is to God. It's when we trust him. Yeah. It's right relationship to God. Right relationship. Yeah. yeah. So I've jotted something down. I, I can't resist sharing. You all know that I've been studying Mesopotamia for a long time. <laughs> so if my needle gets a little stuck, it's because I'm still studying Mesopotamia. And I, I recently found a book that Satan tried very hard to keep me from. I, I was given a gift card for Barnes & Noble. I went on to Barnes & Noble to get the book. I purchased it. <coughs> I um, decided that um, I would read it as soon as I could after I got it. It looked like the very thing I had been wanting for years and couldn't find anything like that. And the book never came. When I went back to Barnes and Nobles, there was no evidence I had ever ordered anything. Uh -huh. And unfortunately, I had thrown the gift card away. <laughs> and unfortunately, I didn't even know the name of the book or the author's name. I had forgotten all of that. So I went for, uh, let's see, this was, this was over my 60th birthday. <laughs> so it went on for like that for two years. And I would pray periodically to get the book. I would pray periodically to know what the book title was, etc. And finally, one day, while I was doing research, I discovered what I felt was probably the book title and author. It looked familiar. It, it, the author's name looked familiar. And the topic was definitely what I had assumed the book was about. I didn't want to pay the price. I had been given, you know, a $50 gift certificate to allow me to afford this book with only a few dollars over. I didn't want to pay that price again. So I ordered it a little more cheaply on Kindle. And thankfully, Kindle had all the page numbers and everything. It was, it was full, fully there, not like some books that you order on Kindle. So I began to present this book and then the, the device that I had used to read the book disappeared. Fortunately, I had another device that had the book on it and I was able to, but it was smaller print and I, ha I was able to read it on that. And in order to be able to accommodate it, because Kindle's hard to, it's not like a book that you can leaf through and rapidly find something. You know, you have to scroll and scroll and scroll and, and uh, you lose your place and you have trouble finding it again and, and all of that. So I started copying what I thought was important and I ended up copying almost every paragraph. I mean, I was practically copying the book because all of it pertained to what I was studying. So what I learned from this book is that originally you had the family unit and the family unit was independent, could think for itself and all of that. Some families were egalitarian and some families were patriarchal. But these families became 
your identity, you were loved by a parent or two parents. And you had your identity in that. And then one day, somebody invented technology. They invented a clay, and I can't think of the term, plow. Or maybe we would say um, a, a, a hoe, a clay hoe that was much better than the copper ones or whatever they were using before. Uh, I think they were using stone, stone hoe. A clay hoe was lighter and it could cut more exactly. And so they began to invent various tools to use in farming. And of course, by this time, they were beginning to domesticate animals and beginning to have crops in a much larger way. And they developed surplus. And with surplus, people came. And pretty soon, urbanization sprang up hugely. I mean, we, we think of ancient Near Eastern cities as small, not in Mesopotamia. They were huge. And so they had these large cities. And then you have to have organization when you have so many people around, right? So you have to organize it. And that brought in hierarchy. And more and more people, less and less people farmed. The people who farmed in the villages still had their identity and somewhat of their autonomy, though not everyone did. So they did that, but they were lower class. And there became the workplace. And there was the elitist workplace of the people who developed technology. And there was the mass production workplace that was down in the lower class and they didn't have equality anymore and they didn't have the the income that the elite class did. And so the workplace identity changed and transformed them from a family to work for your earnings. And your earnings became definitive of who you were. That, in turn, elicited by the hierarchy, the need, because the biggest place in this urbanization period was the temple. So how do you keep people from revolting because they're not treated equally? Well, the way, you, because in mass production, you have a lot of workers and there are more workers than there are technologists. So you have to find a way to keep them from revolting. So what happened is that instead of the family gods, which were the ancestors, and I'm not saying this is good, but I'm just saying that's how it was. The ancestors and the natural forces became were deified. Not a good thing. But what is worse, they developed a god of hierarchy to define the identity and fix it. So because if you, if you revolted, you were revolting against the gods, and they would punish you. Hmm. So today we're revolting against our God. We're, we're Babylonian to the core in society. In the current activities, I mean, around the countries, we're going against God. The gods we have, we have chosen. The gods we elected. Yeah. The yeah. God we elected, it was chosen by heaven. Right. <laughs> What's the name of the book? The book that I read? Yeah. 
Was it the Look Magazine book? No. The Ancient, <laughs> hang on a minute, let me get my phone. It's fascinating <clears throat> with Jean because her whole studies were about Mesopotamia and Babylon, so it's really helps in a lot of ways to understand what's going on. Okay, um, it's a it's a very ordinary time. The ancient Near East, colon, history, society, history, society, and economy. And it's by Mario Liverini. Liverini. He was an Italian scholar who um, wrote this massive book. Now, as it gets into the time of Akkad and the First Empire, um, I've gone to other books because he's not as good. He, he doesn't allow text to interpret things. But where the, before there were no texts, <laughs> before there were texts, I should say, he's very good at putting piecing the evidence together for his case. So I've used him extensively for that. I don't know of any other author that has written a book as definitive as his or even close to going through those early time periods and mapping out the social economic constructions. It's just phenomenal what he's done. And he's well, he's well liked, though not everybody agrees with him on the later periods. So consequently, he's most valuable to me before writing was invented. And up maybe through the time writing was invented. But when he gets into Sargon of Akkad, who was the first emperor or tried to build an empire, uh, I've gone to a book on, on him that I think is more reasonable because he accepts all the data. He doesn't just say, oh, the texts don't matter. There's, there's a big squabble going on. And this writer actually identified it. Because they, the scholars are in a kind of a jackpot <clears throat> that they've put themselves into because they wouldn't accept anything in the Bible as true. Then they had to, to, be, to justify their use of ancient Near Eastern texts. <laughs> and, when they, and when they realized that they, and be fair and honest, that they couldn't reject the Bible and accept ancient Near Eastern texts, that that wasn't fair, <laughs> they had to reject ancient New Eastern texts as well. So there's a whole school of thought that did that. <laughs> so and, um, we're historians, and, but we don't believe anything written in history. <laughs> <laughs> so Benjamin Foster, the author I'm now using, actually states that it had, goes back to the biblical problem that they wrestled with. And he tends to support even the Bible's take on Nimrod. Nimrod may have been Sargon. And, and I'm looking for traces of him as I read. It's just very fascinating stuff. Well, you know, I like archaeology, and I've been studying recently. They found two silver, they're 10 centimeters, uh, would be wide when they unrolled it. And it was, one side was a verse in Deuteronomy, which I've written down. And then there was a couple years later, they didn't realize it took them two or three, well, about three years to unscroll this, and it's silver. Mm -hmm. It took them that long to roll it out. But on one side is this Deuteronomy passage, 
didn't realize till a couple of years ago on the back is numbers. And it's 600 years old than the Dead Sea Scrolls. 600 years older? 600 Dead years Sea's? older than the Dead wow. Sea Scrolls. Where did you find this? Uh, it's, it's one of the archaeology programs I watch. Um, Oh, I have a, you know, the problem with archaeology is when when there's a dispute about something or it, it and tends to threaten the status quo of archaeology and what they believe, it gets just, you don't hear anything more about it. You'll hear one glip. It's, it's like the time Dan Rathers was reporting on evening news. And he said that they did a DNA study of the Neanderthal man and he was not human. And it went, that was the end. They shut down. And I've never heard another word. <laughs> also, I was studying a program where they <clears throat> big debates about when writing started and, and uh, rather than just pictures. And they mm -hmm. found a cave in, it's in Syria, where, uh, which is now Syria, where they have writings starting. And that's the oldest writings now. And I don't remember how old that is, but they figure it's a certain age, but. Because the still, theory I was, I had heard is that the copper miners down in Edomite territory mm -hmm. uh, invented writing to communicate with each other as they were going up and down into the copper mines. That was the theory I heard. Mm -hmm. But you know, I, you can't find that written down in a scholarly book anywhere. I don't think. No, no. Satan doesn't like truth. No, no. He, and he has commandeered the whole world right. to his agenda of not revealing what is true. Is somewhere in the Bible it talks about the truth will set you free. Right, John 8, 32. And Satan doesn't want us to be free. No, he wants, to, he wants us to be under his bondage. So back to 1 Thessalonians, our time is nearly up. I think we've covered through verse 12. I'm going to put a little mark here in my Bible. And then uh, it's one I can erase if I like. And so I know where to start next time. So we're, beginning, we're beginning to speed up a little. Yeah. So 1 so, Thessalonians 13 is where we'll begin next week. Okay. And Paul wrote Thessalonians in his own hand, right? Um, let me see what he says. At I think the he end. says that at the end. I just looked ahead. <laughs> um, not First Thessalonians. I guess second he did. Thanks, second. Yeah, this is how I write. This verifies that the letter is from me. Apparently, he this undercurrent of the Judaizers is really going on and yeah, really being a problem for Paul. Right. So why don't we close with prayer? Okay, and then we'll end it. Dear God, we thank you for Paul's ministry and what he has taught us so much about you and about how who we are in you. Help us to be in you at all times as our point of reference, as our identity, as our whole. We pray that we will live in you and breathe your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.